Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about post-biological intelligence. Now, in the last episode, we talked about, uh, let's see, we talked about some work by the SETI researcher Seth Shostak, and we talked about the philosopher Susan Schneider, who had both written about uh, the idea of looking for signs of alien intelligence elsewhere in the Milky Way, and uh, the the proposition that if we were to encounter such an intelligence, it would probably be more likely the machine uh, descendants of a previous biological intelligence than it would be biological entities themselves. That that uh, over time organisms like us will tend to sort of turn themselves into machines or at least create a technoculture that's dominated by machines and that these are the types of uh, intelligences that we should really be looking for and trying to predict uh, in terms of their characteristics and things like that. So we can jump right back into the middle of this conversation where we left off last time with uh, talking about post-biological intelligence. Now, Another big question here, and uh, and in this we'll we'll go back to, to Schneider is it is the the question of would a machine culture like this, if you encountered it, would this machine artificial intelligence would it be conscious, and what would that mean, and would it make a difference even? Yeah, this is a really good question. Uh, the way she puts it is, would the processing of a silicon-based super intelligent system feel a certain way from the inside? Uh, now, I'm going to go into less detail on this argument than than I did on the other half of her argument, but uh, I did want to try to give a few highlights. This question is inherently difficult to answer because, uh, according to some philosophers, you know, some people would say that this question is impossible to answer because there is no way to test for consciousness beyond our first our own first person experience. I mean, we can't even test to see if other people are conscious. We just assume they are. It seems like they are. They claim to be, and there's no reason to assume they're not. Uh, but of course, you, you have ideas like uh, the philosopher David Chalmers. You know, he famously framed this idea of the easy problems versus the hard problems of consciousness. And so, the easy problems—they're not actually easy, but they are—they are in principle solvable. They're things like what parts of the brain are necessary in order to generate conscious experience. Like you could, you know, you could do research on that and have people report back when different parts of the brain are disabled or something. You know, you can figure mm -hmm. out things like that. But it's much more difficult to, or Chalmers would argue, ultimately impossible to get to the bottom of the question. Why does all this information processing in the human brain under certain conditions have a felt quality to it? Like, why is there consciousness in the first place? And if we do not know or possibly even cannot know why we possess a felt subjective experience, how could we ever reason backwards to know if alien machines would also possess it? Uh, now, Schneider responds to all this thinking, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but her main point is that – the activity of the brain is, according to her argument, primarily computational, and in the absence of compelling evidence for what she calls biological naturalism, and that's the idea that consciousness is or is likely to be unique to biological carbon-based organisms, uh, Daniel Dennett 
ridicules this point of view by calling it the belief that the brain possesses what he calls wonder tissue. You know, that there's just something in the brain that, like magic, allows it to generate consciousness while other types of things can't generate consciousness. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to this question, whether things other than brains can or cannot generate consciousness. It, uh, I, I'm sort of skeptical of both sides of the argument, but uh, but anyway, Schneider argues that we should conclude by analogy that other computational agents, because our brains are computational agents and they generate consciousness, that other computational agents are also capable of possessing consciousness unless there's some kind of evidence that biological naturalism is, is necessarily true, and she says there's not, and I, I agree that there is not evidence of that. You know, what's interesting about the way that you just laid this out, though, I can easily imagine a situation where an advanced AI is forced to uh, sort of ponder the situation. Well, is is having a conscious um, this conscious experience? Is it important? Well, <laughs> let's let me create a, like a programming or a subset of myself that has at least as close of an approximation of consciousness as my, as, as as it is understood at that time. Mm-hmm in order to evaluate, you know? Right. Um, so then it perhaps has sort of its its main mind, but then it has sort of a, a subset of quote-unquote conscious minds just in case it is important. Yeah, obviously. I mean, huge question, like, how would it know how to do that? But assuming right. it could, that, yeah, that, that's really funny that, like, it could try to iterate consciousness in, a, in an experimental way to see if uh, to see if it makes a difference. Because that's another big thing, like, you know, the biological question about consciousness. We at least know that biological brains can be conscious. We don't know if computers can be or not. But since biological brains are conscious, is that an adaptive evolutionary trait? Does consciousness do something? Or or could you have a an animal that is absolutely functionally identical to a human, but not conscious? This is actually the concept of a philosophical zombie or a pea zombie, a, a yeah. being that is that is uh, indistinguishable from a normal human, except it has no inner experience. Right. So, in, in like this scenario where the the super AI creates like a council of quote unquote conscious uh, iterations of itself, like maybe they're just faking consciousness. How would it know? Yeah. <laughs> and then how would it know? How would we know? Um, and yeah, again, if you're and then if you're dealing with an AI, like suddenly we make contact with an AI from another uh, world. Um, is it important that it be conscious or not conscious? Like there are lots of things that are important and even beneficial that are not conscious, like the, um, you know, the Bill of Rights is not a conscious entity. <laughs> uh but, uh, you know, I think most would argue that it is it is important. It does good things. I mean, um, you could argue that it is only important in that it has effects on con- on things that are conscious. Yeah. Like in a universe where there was nothing that was conscious, would the Bill of Rights be useful? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I guess there are some theories of value that would that would say, like, yeah, thing, things could still be of value even if they weren't conscious. Right. Uh, yeah. And then again, again, it just, it also kind of becomes pointless because once you're talking to that AI, um, yeah, well, what does, what does it mean if it's conscious or not? Like, how does that change the way you interact with it? Um, unless you're, you, you know, actively saying, Hey, stop, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're thinking about. Uh, I don't know. So I, I don't know what to think about the consciousness question for, for alien machines. I mean, I think, I think Schneider makes, uh, the best argument that I could imagine for it, but I still don't know if I'm convinced just because this whole realm to me just seems so uncertain. Yeah. Um, but uh, but th- then she goes on to some other things that I think are some really interesting ideas, actually. She talks about uh, 
what would be the predictable characteristics of super intelligent machines, the, the minds we would encounter out there if we did encounter them? Well, she admits that there's not a lot we can know, at least certainly not that much that we can say with, with too much confidence, but we can make some educated guesses about the broad strokes of, of alien intelligence. And to do this, she cites the work of, again, philosopher Nick Bostrom, who is famous for writing about AI risks, and I believe he actually coined the term superintelligence, though I could be wrong about that. But uh, Bostrom says, yes, it is hard to predict the goals of a future AI. You know, alien intelligence is very difficult to understand. But he identifies what he thinks are several intellectual tendencies that are likely to be found in any super intelligent AI, and they're likely to be found in any of them because he says these traits are useful in attaining almost any goal. And so the, these goals he identifies are resource acquisition. Makes sense. You need resources in order to like keep your processes going. Mm -hmm. Technological perfection, right? You want yourself to work efficiently. Cognitive enhancement. You always want to be smarter. Self-preservation, you want to be able to keep doing things. And then uh, what he calls goal content integrity. And Schneider summarizes that by saying, i.e., that a super intelligent being's future self will pursue and attain those same goals. Uh, and th this one was really interesting to me, actually, thinking about the idea that a machine would need to try to make sure that as it iterates to to improve itself – it doesn't change what it was trying to do in the first place. Mm, sort of a prime directive sort of situation, right? Yeah. Uh, or to come back to the, the culture, the idea that like if you're created, if your original design is to aid humans and make their life easier, then you keep doing that. Even if you are ultimately the uh, calling all the shots now and you know, are in charge of all the interactions with uh, other civilizations, etc., yeah, and that that actually comes into the next thing she says about uh, Bostrom's ideas on on these super intelligences. Uh, she she writes, "quote He underscores that self preservation can involve group or individual preservation, and that it may play second fiddle to the preservation of the species the AI was designed to serve." So it could be that these AIs, if they ever do come to exist, would – yeah, they, they would be the, the custodians or caretakers thinking mainly about the preservation of the species that created them. And then when they come to us, they ultimately just want to serve man. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then one last thing that uh, Schneider argues that I, I thought would be interesting to mention is uh, – and I think I said this earlier, but she also argues that – Perhaps the most common form of superintelligence we could expect to encounter would be what she calls biologically inspired superintelligent aliens. And that uh, if this argument is correct, this could also tell us some things about intellectual characteristics that we would expect to find in these superintelligences. Uh, so to read from Schneider's chapter, she says, uh, it may turn out that of all superintelligent AIs, biologically inspired superintelligent AIs bear the most resemblance to each other. In other words, BISAs may be the most cohesive subgroup because the other members are so different from each other. Uh, and there she's talking about members of the galactic community, basically, uh, that the biologically inspired ones would have the most in common with each other. So what kinds of things could they have in common? She says, notice that BISAs have two features that may give rise to common cognitive capacities and goals. One, BISAs are descended from creatures that had motivations like find food, avoid injury and predators, reproduce, cooperate, compete, and so on. And then second, she says, 
The life forms that beasts are modeled from have evolved to deal with biological constraints like slow processing speed and the spatial limitations of embodiment. So she says, could these two principles, one and two, yield traits common to members of many super intelligent alien civilizations? I suspect so. And she gives a bunch of examples, but I mean, a very simple and easy to grasp one would be that since intelligent biological life is primarily concerned with its biological imperatives, mainly survival and reproduction, she says it is more likely that beasts would have final goals involving their own survival and reproduction, or at least the survival and reproduction of the members of their society. Uh, and I was just thinking this can be extrapolated to other ideas. For example, why wouldn't a super intelligent AI just just reprogram itself until it is no longer anything like its biological ancestor? So is it still really reproducing the original version of itself at all? Well, if you think back to Bostrom's idea of, of uh, goal content integrity, I wonder if this could in a way entail a kind of halting – of the evolutionary process of life that has gone on throughout all of history, because suddenly once you reach this level of intelligence, a, a machine iterating itself may just want to preserve the idea that it is still its original self. That's an inherently motivating goal for it. And thus it would prevent changes to itself that would make it feel too different from what it once was. Huh? You know, it reminds me of like when you when you hear a really great song for the first time or you, you start playing a video game and it really grabs you or, you know, you, you get super into, you know, some fandom or another. There's, at least for me, there's sometimes that point where you realize like, wow, this is really fulfilling for me right now. And the day will come when it won't be. Mm -hmm. Like as much as I enjoy this game or this book or this song or whatever it is, there will come a day when I will set it aside because and I will there will be something else I'm into. So I guess the question is it's like if 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 we or this uh, you know machine that we're imagining here if it could decide no I will always be into this album. This album is great and it shall always be that way. Would it do that? Would it set itself in time? Or would it uh, like assume that it would always be in this? And just it kind of gets back to that vampire scenario you've brought up before, you know? You don't know what you're going to want when you become the vampire. And it's hard to imagine what your mindset is when you reach that point. Yeah, yeah, th that's a really good point. Uh, certainly applies to uh, becoming some kind of machine or merging with it or, or remodeling yourself if you already are a machine. Now, Schneider makes a number of other arguments about the types of post-biological intelligences that we would be likely to encounter, again, derived from the idea that there is some kind of ancestral biological inspiration behind these hypothetical superintelligences. And the thing she zeroes in on is that some limitations from original biological organisms are things that AIs would probably want to engineer out of themselves, right? Now, you can think of plenty of things about your brain that if you know your brain were to evolve into some kind of computer that was always perfecting itself it might want to leave by the wayside over time uh, you know maybe some of your obsessions and anxieties and stuff like that yeah, but, but what's left if you take all that out, right? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, but then she also says that there are, quote, 
Cognitive capacities that sophisticated forms of biological intelligence are likely to have and which enable the superintelligence to carry out its final and instrumental goals. We could also look for traits that are not likely to be engineered out as they do not detract the BISA from its goals. So there are some traits of biological intelligence that probably have inherent advantages. There are just some ways that brains work really good and it would want to replicate that and, and just refine it across time. And then there are other traits of biological intelligences that might not have clear advantages, but they at least wouldn't detract from the attainment of goals. So just, you know, why, why not keep them around? Yeah, sort of the lukewarm stuff that's not uh, detrimental to the, their goals, but, all, but doesn't maybe help it all that much, but isn't, isn't using a lot of energy, etc. Right. Uh, so to get into Schneider's explicit predictions for biologically inspired superintelligences, uh, the first one I'm not going to get uh, deep into because it's a little dry, but this is a, a fair point, I guess. She says, learning about the computational structure of the brain of the species that created the BISA can provide insight into the BISA's thinking patterns. Okay, so basically you can start to gain some insights into the computational structure of an animal's brain or, uh, or nervous system more broadly by studying the brain's connectome. Uh, a connectome is a map of the connections between neurons, which at least in theory would help you understand which cells and structures in the brain or the nervous system broadly share information with which others in order to better understand how information is processed as a whole. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think for instance, like when we think of an artificial intelligence, we are often loosely thinking of like that, like that single entity. But what if you had, what if you had an alien life form that had sort of a, a pronounced bicameral mind situation going on, where like the actual organic organism had uh, like two houses of of thought going on that kind of communicate with each other, and therefore that ends up being reflected in the AI they create. Oh, that's very interesting. That'll actually come back to a question I have about one of the points she makes later on. Uh, but again, just the point she's making here is that if you can look at the physical structure of the original ancestral organism that the intelligence has evolved from, that can help you understand something about how the intelligence of its machine descendant works. Quote, while it is likely that a given BISA will not have the same kind of connectome as the members of the original species, some of the functional and structural connections may be retained and interesting departures from the originals may be found. Now, after that, she brings up a second point that I thought was a very interesting prediction. She writes, quote, Bisas may have viewpoint invariant representations. Uh, now, what does that mean? Well, an easy way to think about it is this. If you're watching a movie and the camera suddenly cuts to a different angle in the middle of a scene, but it's still the same scene going on. How is it that you still understand you're watching a continuation of the same action as before? Everything looks completely different, but you understand that these are the same actors playing the same characters in the same room, even though it looks totally different. This is one of the ways that human intelligence still drastically outperforms artificial intelligence on Earth. You know, humans can look at an object. It's a VHS tape of the Star Wars holiday special, and you can look at it from completely different angles. Maybe the front cover of the box looks completely different than the back cover of the box, but you turn it around and you still understand that you're looking at the same object. Humans are able to form mental representations of objects in the world that can be isolated and recognized and manipulated within the mind's eye. Uh, 
And we humans are not typically going to be confused about what we're looking at because we took a step to the side and changed the angle of observation. Even though the light reflecting off of the object and hitting our eyes will produce a very different pattern on the retina, we somehow still use our intelligence to know that we're still looking at the same object or scene. And this is a much, much harder task for a computer. I mean, ask anybody who's been involved in visual object recognition. It's an incredibly difficult task for AI. And this is one of the many amazing fast and loose intellectual feats that humans do all the time, so often that we, we rarely appreciate how amazing our brains are in this regard. Uh, another example from a recent episode was, you know, recall in the Moses Illusion episode, we talked about how good we are at getting the gist of a statement or a question, even if major pieces of information within the sentence are wrong and should be throwing you off in completely the wrong direction. You still are able to very quickly get what the person was probably intending to say and operate on that basis. Now, here's where it goes with uh, viewpoint invariant representations, especially as it concerns like physical objects in the world. Schneider argues that you can expect any biologically inspired AI to have viewpoint invariant representations because they seem to be inextricably linked to the biological development of intelligence. And uh, just to, I, I'm expanding on her thoughts here, but I, I think the reasoning goes something like this. What is intelligence? That's actually kind of a difficult question to answer, right? Like it's kind of hard to pin down, but I think one plausible answer has to do with speed intelligence has something to do with the ability to accelerate problem solving or goal acquisition. So you could have an organism that has essentially a random strategy for trying to get what it wants, and every step it goes above a random strategy is in a way an increase in intelligence. It's accelerating the solution of problems. Now to follow the biological reasoning a little further there, why is it that animals in general need a speed of problem-solving intelligence that most plants do not? Well, I think the answer there is that animals' survival and reproduction strategies are usually based on movement. This wouldn't be true of all things in the you know kingdom animalium, not so much for sponges and stuff. But most animals move fairly rapidly, whether that's for foraging or evading predators or seeking mates or anything like that. If you are able to move fairly quickly, that means your body needs a system of deciding in what direction to move relatively quickly. And uh, so I could be missing something here, but it seems to me that it's a pretty safe assumption that this is one of the major drivers of the development of biological intelligence, coming up with better and better systems for adaptively optimizing strategies for rapid movement to fit the specifics of the situation you're in. So you're constantly faced with new situations, predator approaching from a different angle, uh, food to be found in a different you know, orientation or like a, in a different hard to reach space. And your body needs a way to adapt to whatever situation you're in to decide the best way to move. Yeah, it kind of comes down to, um, to a certain extent, passive energy acquisition versus active energy acquisition. Yes. Uh, because, you know, obviously if you have passive energy acquisition, you don't necessarily need to move as much. You know, you can just sort of set up shop. And, of course, we see examples of that not only you know, in, in plants but also in, in animals as well. Yeah. I mean, how, how would it help a plant to have a brain? You know, mm -hmm. a plant just needs to basically be hardy and sit there and collect sunlight. Yeah. 
Now, then again, I guess I could imagine a scenario where plants evolve intelligence. If they've got some kind of, uh, I don't know, mechanism that allows them to start moving more quickly, they could uh, start evolving so that they could, uh, you know, trees could evade lumberjacks or something. (laughs) Well, you know, before we get, uh, you know, multiple emails about this, I I will say we will do an episode on plant intelligence at some point because there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting stuff out there and some some really so, uh, actually you know, there's some arguments that kind of turn some of what we're saying here uh, on its head so uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to keep this conversation in mind when we get around to that future conversation that's a good point I mean it, I think the movement thing would have to be not a universal necessity for the development of intelligence but it seems like one of the, the major pathway that it has evolved on earth yeah uh, because I mean you can imagine other things basically intelligence allows adaptive problem solving. So that could Mm -hmm. also involve, say, not moving your body, but releasing chemicals into the environment and allowing communication between different nodes in a hub of of trees or fungus or something. Yeah. You could have some sort of, um, you know, pheromone spitting, um, like master plant uh, that that has other things to do its bidding, that has other things built its spacecraft. But to the extent that biological intelligence is often a product of the evolution of rapid movement, viewpoint invariant representations would seem to be a necessary part of intelligence there because they are necessary for an intelligent creature that moves. If you are able to move your body, your sense data about objects in your environment is going to be changing based on your perspective, especially if those senses are based on something that has linear trajectories like light. You know, light bounces off things in a linear way, so you're going to see different angles of it. I don't know. If you were a creature entirely based on smells, I I don't know. I guess then still uh, viewpoint invariant would matter because, you know, there would be different concentrations of volatiles in the air depending on where you stand relative to, to an object. But it seems like in general, these types of representations would be useful uh, in that regard. And then Schneider adds another point there. Uh, she says that viewpoint invariant representations are not only important so that we don't get confused about what we're looking at in the environment. You know, you don't look at a rock from the opposite side and not understand it's the same rock. She says they're also important for abstract reasoning. Quote, you have mental representations that are at a relatively high level of processing and are viewpoint invariant. It seems difficult for biologically based intelligence to evolve without viewpoint invariant representations as they enable categorization and prediction. So because you can represent objects as a kind of symbol or, or emblem of themselves in your brain that is independent of just the one way they looked when you looked at them from one angle, you can sort of like you can turn them around in your brain and think about how they might be used as a tool, or you can predict how they would act given certain physical forces on them. Yeah, and you know, th- this makes me think a little bit of the uh, uh, the book by David Eagleman, Livewired, talking about the, like the different sensory inputs for the human brain, and how if you um, if you you know you lose one sensory input and you can add another, or you can even add all new sensory inputs our brains will make sense of it. Our brains will essentially form that mental image of the thing, um, even if we don't have visual uh, processing at our disposal. So if an alien brain is is at all like a human brain, you know, in, in, in enough respects, then it seems like the same thing would be going on, even if we were dealing with a being that, say, evolved uh, with less of a reliance on vision or more of a reliance on other senses or even some sense that, the, you know, that we have a have a difficult time imagining because we don't possess it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that it would need, based on whatever senses it had, 
to have some kind of uh, mental representations of objects in the world that would not be changed just by slightly changing the physical perspective from which you sense that object. Yeah. Now, it does raise all sorts of interesting questions. Like, what if what if the sense of smell was the primary sense? How do you create, say, a control panel uh, for your spaceship? You know, oh, interesting. Like, each button has a different smell. I don't know. There. Uh, um, again, maybe it's a situation where we don't have a versatile enough palette or appreciation of the palette ourselves to even envision what that would be like. But, you know, our, our dogs, uh, you know, if they were more intelligent, they could let us know. They would say, oh, yeah, I can totally imagine what it would be like. Oh, man, here's my idea for sci-fi novel. Okay, humans, uh, humans come into conflict with an interstellar species that has uh, that has a culture that's all entirely based around a, a species with a dominant sense of smell. And what we have to do is uplift dogs to the point where they have human intelligence so that they can tell us what it's like to see the world through that much smell data so that we can better understand the aliens in order to protect ourselves against them. Yeah. And if it's a derelict ship or something like that, perhaps the control panels, like they've lost a lot of their smell. So it's we don't even initially realize that this is a scent-based control system. But then the dogs, they, they're like, yes, I can still smell things. There are numerous smells going on here. This is like sticking my head out the window while you drive around town. This is gold. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I think Schneider's point here is a really interesting one. I, I do think that's worth considering about the viewpoint invariant representation. But uh, to move on to her next point, uh, this one's also, I think, pretty cool. She says, Bisa's will probably have language-like mental representations that are recursive and combinatorial. And to illustrate this, Schneider gives the example of novel sentences. Now, we encounter novel sentences all the time, every day. I'll do one of my own here. Here's the sentence. The Howling Seven, New Moon Rising, is the greatest film ever made. <laughs> you have never heard this sentence spoken before, and yet you understand perfectly what it would mean for somebody to say this. Why is it that we're constantly hearing and speaking totally unique, brand new sentences, probably never uttered before by any human, certainly not in a way that we've heard, and yet they're perfectly comprehensible? Schneider argues that, uh, quote, the key is that the thoughts are combinatorial because they're built out of familiar constituents and combined according to rules. The rules apply to constructions out of primitive constituents that are themselves constructed grammatically, as well as to primitive constituents themselves. Grammatical mental operations are incredibly useful. It is the combinatorial nature of thought that allows one to understand and produce these sentences on the basis of one's anti antecedent knowledge of the grammar and atomic constituents. So because you have an internalized sense of grammar, not just, you know, it's not just that you know what the words mean individually, but you also grasp the rules that apply to how sentences work. And then you even grasp rules that go beyond just how sentences work. You grasp sort of cultural rules about how words fit together to form meaning. One example in the sentence I said is that even if you've never heard of the Howling Seven New Moon Rising, you could probably understand that this is the name of a movie. Okay, but so so what's the point then she's she's making about the the mind of uh, of, of these potential alien AI? 
Well, basically that it would probably be language-based. She goes on to say that a mind, quote, can entertain and produce an infinite number of distinct representations because the mind has a combinatorial syntax. So something like a language with grammar. And she concludes this point by saying, quote, brains need combinatorial representations because there are infinitely many possible linguistic representations, you know, an infinite number of sentences you could say. And the brain only has a finite storage space, right? So the brain can't just store every possible sentence within itself and then check whatever somebody just said against that sentence stored in memory. It's got to be flexible. It's got to be able to build an understanding of sentences on the fly based on these constituent parts and an understanding of grammar. Okay, that makes sense. I think it's one of those things that most of us, you know, in our sci-fi visions, we tend to just assume the intelligent aliens have some sort of a language and that they're, you know, an AI version would as well. Uh, but it is good to see that um, driven home with logic here. Well, I mean, you could imagine somebody arguing the opposite way. You could say that uh, maybe language is only useful for humans to communicate with each other and that once you had something like a super intelligent AI, it no longer would need to communicate with these primitive tools. It could just have, I don't know what, you know, imagine some kind of machine uh, version of, of telepathy where it just it represents the world as some kind of, I don't know what it would be. It represents uh, some kind of internal states to different parts of itself without having a code system like language. But uh, Schneider says, quote, even a super intelligent system would benefit from combinatorial representations. Although a super intelligent system could have computational resources that are so vast that it is mostly capable of pairing up utterance or inscriptions with a stored sentence, it would be unlikely that it would trade away such a marvelous innovation of biological brains. If it did, it would be less efficient since there is the potential of a sentence not being in its storage, which must be finite. Uh, so again, she's saying here, like, e even if you would imagine that superintelligence is would get so powerful that they wouldn't need something like language to communicate with each other. It's actually still better to have something like a language, even for internal logic and representing computations from one part of a system to another. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like having a logic budget, uh, you know, I mean, you can just because you, you have a lot of energy at your disposal doesn't mean that you just throw the budget out the window. Yeah. Uh, so again, you know, we're dealing in highly speculative realms. I think it's always possible we're being misled by a lack of imagination. But I think this point is very strong. It seems very likely to me that post-biological AI would benefit from some kind of language-like system of mental symbols and representations that uh, were subject to something like a grammar. Now, there's one point she makes that we already mentioned, and that's that, quote, Bisa's may have one or more global workspaces. Uh, now, again, to explain the global workspace idea, Schneider argues, quote, the global workspace operates as a singular place where important information from the senses is considered in tandem so that the creature can make all things considered judgments and act intelligently in light of all the facts at its disposal. In general, it would be inefficient to have a sense or cognitive capacity that was not integrated with the others because the information from this sense or cognitive capacity would be unable to figure in predictions and plans based on an assessment of all the available information. Now, this one I'm actually less sure about. 
because I, w- I would say, and maybe I'm, I'm partially misunderstanding her point here, uh, but, but I can think of counter arguments to this. Like, isn't there some evidence that the brain does keep some relevant processing information hidden from or segregated from conscious awareness in certain scenarios? Like, maybe there are some types of information that are useful in making certain kinds of calculations, but tend to be inhibitory toward other types of calculations or thought processes if they're considered at the same time. So it's sometimes useful to keep senses or knowledge separated from the cognitive workspace. A very simple example would be the knowledge that you are hungry. The knowledge that you're hungry is useful if you're in a position to get something to eat, but imagine you are stuck on the subway and you don't have any food on you and there's no way you could get food at the at the current time and you're trying to read something or prepare for a work presentation their awareness of your hunger is actually counterproductive it's just distracting you and adding nothing yeah i mean it's it's kind of like the idea of like an an enormous buffet right uh at a let's say a hotel or a, you know, a Shoney's or something, you know, and you go through it with your plate, you get the things off that plate that are necessary for the meal you're about to have. And then of course you can engage in the various combinations and problem solving involved in the consumption of that meal, but you don't need to drag the popcorn shrimp into it. If you're not going to eat the popcorn shrimp, you know, if you can't eat right. the popcorn shrimp, why would that be part of, why would that be on the plate? Why would that be on, in the workspace? Or you don't have to put the ice cream sundae on the same plate that you put the nachos on. Right. Yeah. It can be off to the side. Uh, yeah. You, know, you can uh, keep the, the banana pudding segregated from the crab legs. Yeah. Then again, uh, I, I think to be fair to this argument, you could probably also counter argue that this type of problem is only a result of inefficiencies in our brains that maybe could be worked out by artificial intelligence, you know, upgrading itself. Maybe you could reach the point where you could have a global workspace where all information is available at the same time and information that is not useful now uh, can, can just be sort of like safely ignored and won't be distracting. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine. Like it's, it kind of makes one think of some of like a situation where something is built by committee where mm-hmm. all, all concerns and all factors are involved. And I don't know, that kind of thing can lead to, I guess with the right kind of project, it, it, it can be rather successful. You can sort of look at it both ways, right? You could look at like a, a highly, um, efficient, uh, like NASA project. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we can also think of, um, you know, artistic projects that might be compromised by such an approach. So I don't know. You could look at it different ways. Maybe with the sorts of projects that, uh, you know, super intelligent AI would would be focused on, it would make sense. I mean, I, I will at least say with my current limited biological brain, there are certainly times when it is better to have parts of my awareness and parts of my cognition inaccessible to my consciousness. Yeah, I mean, there are some arguments that uh, that, that put forward that, that consciousness itself is... It, 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 like part, part of consciousness is having a, a minimal attention, you know, yeah. being able to focus in on something and not be focused in on everything else like that. That is where the consciousness happens. Yeah. Uh, it, the consciousness could be sort of the spotlight within your global workspace. You've got like a, a workspace for problem solving and consciousness is how you uh, you determine what is right in front of you in that space right now. Right. And then finally, uh, Schneider argues that a B says mental processing can be understood via functional decomposition. 
uh, and this is fairly straightforward. It's just, you know, minds are hard to understand. Brains are incredibly complex. The same would be true of super intelligences, whatever kind of physical stu- substrate they're based on. But you can break down brains and computers into their constituent functional parts and structures. And uh, by doing that, you can break the big problem into smaller problems and more easily understand how they work. And this would, in theory, at least apply even to incredibly powerful AIs. Okay, fair enough. Now, there's one last thing I was wondering about. This is not raised by Schneider. Uh, This just occurred to me. Would post-biological AI be likely to have an equivalent of what we regard as emotions? (laughs) You know, if if you encounter one of these things, would it matter in what tone of voice you were to speak to it? Would it be possible to hurt its feelings? Hmm. I don't know. Like, uh, um, perhaps... In term, like we might have to break down what emotions are in a way that would make sense to something like this. Like maybe part of it would come down to urgency, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be a situation where, out of urgency, the machine would need to essentially raise its voice. Um, though it would, would maybe not, you know, maybe this would not be carried out in a way that we would think of as emotional, but it might, you know, seem similar as to whether it would, its feelings could be hurt. I don't know, maybe maybe its assessment of us could change based on the way that we are expressing ourselves to it, and that is similar to an emotional reaction. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's hard to separate emotional reactions to our behavior with purely logical, uh, the ability to predict our future behavior, right? Because I, I would mm-hmm. say a lot of ways that we react emotionally to people it could be very flawed in this regard, but they're at least somehow correlated to a feeling about how this same person that is making you feel a certain way now would behave towards you in the future. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of all over the board when it comes to imagining the emotional context of, of AI, because even when we, we sort of do that thing where we, you know, we fall back on, on AI presenting itself like this to us, uh, yes, you know, with cal- the soft voice. Yeah. Yes. Like even that is like the, we present it as being calm and understanding, if if not, you know, in, kind of emotionalist, but in a way that British itself accent. is an emotion. Yeah. <laughs> British accent. Uh, but but also, yeah, we often we often imagine it as being sort of infinitely calm and above um, above anger, which in and of itself is kind of an, is, is an emotional state. So. I guess there are actually two totally different questions. Would a super intelligent, biologically inspired AI simulate emotions for the benefit of a, you know, for the benefit of a biological audience? Or would it actually have something like emotions that are truly motivating its own behavior? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It seems a difficult one to unravel. I guess where my brain just went is when we imagine uh, aliens becoming aware of us, you know, and we try to imagine their mind states, some of the ones we come to are like pity, you know, like, oh, these, you know, less technologically developed species of Earth, you know, maybe we should help them or uh, maybe just uh, a a desire to destroy us, squash us out uh, or a desire to like have all of our resources. But we don't often imagine what if the aliens encounter us and they're embarrassed for us. It's like so cringe inducing. Well, and that that could be part of of them choosing not to engage with us at all, right? But anyway, uh, I I found this chapter by Schneider really interesting, even though uh, I'm skeptical of some of these transhumanist ideas, but I think this is really worth a read. It's it's very interesting. 
Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and she's, she's a, just a good science communicator in general. You'll find various talks that she's given. Um, I think she's done some work, uh, you know, on PBS. Her work's been covered as well in various publications. Yeah. So let's come back to, uh, to Shostek, though, uh, and particularly his ideas concerning SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. What, what does all of this mean for SETI? Uh, so we'd be talking about, in theory, a highly intelligent, effectively immortal species, if you will, that evolves, can replicate itself, and has no biological environmental demands. Mm, interesting, yeah. So how does that change what you're looking for? Um, so uh, Shostak argues that, you know, consequently, since it would not be limited by biological lifespans, interstellar travel would be uh, would certainly be an option. You know, you wouldn't be limited by your mortality. All trips would be the same length. You would just need energy and material for replacement and the improvement of parts. On top of this, these machines, this machine civilization would not be limited to water worlds. Uh, But while low energy machines could survive pretty much anywhere, truly dominant post-biological civilizations would still require a lot of energy. And that, of course, means needing to be near major energy sources, such as uh, stars and black holes. It seems like... uh once you transition from being a biological life form to a post biological life form, the specifics of your needs become less chemical and more just broadly physical. Yeah, yeah. So, and in this, this of course has ramifications for for part of the search for extraterrestrial life because then it means that well, maybe searching for rocky, wet planets isn't where we're going to find the advanced civilization because the advanced civilizations no longer need that. So Shostak suggests that the galactic center would be the ideal place for these machines to set up shop, a region of high energy density. Again, distance and biological concerns don't really matter. And likewise, uh, stellar black holes and neutron stars might be ideal places for them to seek out as well. However, he mentions that Serbian astrophysicist uh, Milan M. Uh, Cherkovic has argued that the outer regions of the galaxy might also be ideal for such AI civilizations as, they, as the cold there would permit greater thermodynamic efficiency. Ah, uh, yeah, like we were talking about with the computer fan running, right? That mm-hmm. uh, a, a civilization that is in essence a gigantic computer would need to uh, eject a lot of waste heat. Yeah. Still, there would be less mass and energy out there for them. So it's kind of like the the same with human decisions between a rural or an urban existence. Like, well, if I if I live in the heart of the city, oh, you know, I've got the theater right down the street. I've got my favorite grocery store. Uh, you know, I've got uh, I've, I've got the you know the place where I get my technology worked on. If I move out to the sticks, well, it's quieter. But uh, now, how am I going to get my groceries? Right. How am I going to get uh, uh, the, my culture? How am I going to get my technology uh, ad- addressed? But I can just throw all my garbage out the window and nobody bothers me about it. (laughs) Uh, So Shostak argues that the ideal place to look here. So this would be, you know, this is kind of like when humans make the idea of like, well, I don't want to live. I'm going to compromise. I'm not going to live in the heart of the city. I'm not going to live in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to find a nice place in the suburbs. Right. So Shostak argues that the ideal place where these two ideals converge uh, uh, do exist. Uh, and these are the kind of uh, locations we need to look for. Um, so there, there's a list of such places, quote, that have the thermodynamic advantages of the galactic nether regions, but still lie in regions of high matter density, unquote. And the, these include places called Bach globules. <laughs> uh, these are 
isolated dark nebulae that are relatively small in size, offer high thermodynamic efficiency, and have a lot of interstellar matter. Huh, interesting. The nearest one of these, by the way, is Barnard 68, uh, which I believe we're referencing in the title for this episode, a mere 500 light years away from us. So shows, <laughs> just, so I'm not saying there's anything there, but it makes you think. That is interesting. I, no, I, I don't think I've ever heard of this criteria to look for before. Uh, so, yeah, do, does this mean uh, Showstack obviously is involved in SETI? Does this mean we've got like, uh, you know, uh, radio listening attuned to Barnard 68 right now? <laughs> um, well, I mean, certainly yeah, it's been 10 years since this came out. So if, if, if these are if these are valuable arguments, uh, you know, I would assume they've been reflected to some to some degree. Uh, but yeah, in this paper, he contends that SETI should, you know, continue to look at rocky uh, water worlds, but also at neighborhoods of hot stars, black holes, neutron stars, bot globules, etc. Like it just it you know, we shouldn't limit ourselves as the argument uh, to, to these water worlds, because that may be where life has to emerge from. But given this idea of post-biological life, that's not where it needs to remain. Now, a big question that does remain, however, is what sort of signal would such a post-organic civilization produce that we could detect? Uh, you know, they, they might want us to find them. They might want to find us. Uh, but e- either way, they might, they might put, some, put something out for us, uh, for us to find. Uh, they might, you know, not care that we can observe their Dyson spheres, that sort of thing. Um, but if, you know, but, but what if they don't? Uh, you know, well, then perhaps it takes one of our own AI to, uh, you know, reach the point where it can discern the signs of their existence um, and then perhaps be the ones to reach out and make first contact machine to machine. Ah, okay. So we need a machine to see the gorilla in the video coming from space. Maybe. I mean, again, uh, it depends on what what they want. If they exist and they're at this level, what do they want? Do they want to make contact? Maybe that's the thing. Maybe, again, they know that organic beings can be messy and they just want to wait until we've reached the point where their machine can call their machine, you know? Mm -hmm. I buy that. It's waiting until it doesn't have to deal with meat. Yeah. Like, it doesn't want to chase us down. Just send us the press release. Um Let us know how to get in touch with you, and we'll set something up. That's their whole thing. It's like waiting until, like, I'm not going to order delivery from this place until they've got an online form. I don't want to have to call and talk to somebody. Right. I'm sure it's fine. I'm hearing great things. But get your technology sorted out first, and then we'll begin this relationship. I've got high hopes for this species where people are afraid to talk to other people on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're ultimately left with some of the same questions, not only the big one, does life exist elsewhere in, in the cosmos? But but again, like what would if, if it's if it's alien AI, alien super intelligence, what are they going to make of us? How are we going to fit into what sort of things they they do? Um, or would we fit in at all? Like maybe that's the ultimate thing is like they just don't they don't care. Why would they care? We're the ones obsessed with us. They've got their own thing going on. Do you really care what the squirrel is digging for in the yard? Well, I mean, I do, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, ultimately, do the the, the do the cosmic overlords care? You know, I don't know, maybe not. Now, Shostak continues to discuss how we might refine our search for uh, extraterrestrial life, 
Um, he, he, if you look around uh, for his name, you'll find that he, you know, he gives talks. He discusses SETI in general, uh, the search, uh, how the, the search itself has changed and how we should change it, as well as sort of the societal um, considerations involved. Uh, but one, one example of something he's been up to recently um, in sep- September 2020, um, he had an article titled SETI, The Argument for Artifact Search, is published in the International Journal of Astrobiology. And in this article, he argued that while most of the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence has focused on the search for, quote, artificially generated electromagnetic signals, it's artifacts that we should be spending more time on, uh, or at least more time than we, we are. And this is the idea here is that persistent transmissions, you know, sort of we're here, we're here signals from beyond, these require energy. And then on top of that, the aliens in question, should they exist, they might be exceedingly cryptic, or they might, uh, you know, they might be embarrassed for us. Uh, as we've uh, discussed, or they, they might just be ignorant of our existence and, they, you know, they simply don't know that we exist uh, and likewise don't care. Um, so perhaps we should be looking more for artifacts or specifically evidence of artifacts. Um, to understand waste heat uh, certainly counts as something we'd be looking for in an artifact search, a search for something created or something that was once created uh, by extraterrestrial life. Oh, and this came up in the previous episode when we talked about Dyson spheres. Like one yeah. possible way to look for them is to look for a place where you're not seeing much electromagnetic radiation except heat. And the idea there is that maybe there's a, a sphere around a star that's harvesting almost all of its usable energy. And pretty much the only thing that's coming out the other side of it is just the waste product of their of their processing, which is heat. It's the computer fan blowing out into space. But yeah, it's ultimately an interesting argument. Like, you know, how much effort should we be putting into picking up those signals mm-hmm. of existence uh, versus sort of uh, perhaps more obscure evidence of the existence? You know, uh, especially again if something out there is maybe less uh, inclined to put out that that uh, I am here signal, or you know, to even care or know of our existence to begin with. Yeah. I- I could be wrong, but I think I'm right about this. Like once you get a certain distance away from the earth, you know, some number of light years away at a certain point, like any, uh, any omnidirectionally transmitted radio signal would become so weak by the time it reaches us that we really probably wouldn't notice it. And so like to really notice a signal from an alien civilization, it would probably need to be something that is directionally beamed our way on purpose and that that also requires a lot of assumptions about what's going on with that alien civilization. Yeah, and and maybe maybe it'll happen, but then again, maybe it won't. But yeah, it's just artifacts, byproducts of previous existence, whether that's physical objects or or waste signatures like heat, that could be around for a long time, depending on you know, no matter what the intentions of the civilization are. Well, this has been fun, Rob. Yeah, this has been a fun one. Yeah. So uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. First of all, we mentioned, you know, this is the domain of science fiction. Uh, Science fiction has considered a lot of these questions for for decades. Mm -hmm. So if there are particular examples, uh, let let us know. know, Examples that that touch on some of these themes and ideas, uh, you know, let us know if there is that... that, that that corporate alien uh, sci-fi uh, Reagan era thing that we were uh, 
considering, you know, probably exists. Uh, if you have an ID for it, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And in that feed, you'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursday. On Friday, we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's just a, you know, consideration of a weird film. Uh, we do a little listener mail usually on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, that's when we, we usually have Artifact unless it's being preempted. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.